Welcome to the Fabulously Keto podcast aimed at improving health, vitality and quality of life. Eating real food in a ketogenic lifestyle. I'm Jackie Fletcher and I'm based in the UK. And I'm Louise Reynolds, an Aussie currently based in Bangkok, Thailand. Each week we will be bringing you guests who share their stories and discuss a range of topics which we hope will improve your health and well-being. Many of the guests, like us, came to Keto for Weight Loss and have stayed for their well-being, numerous health benefits and because they are living their best lives. We hope you will be inspired to incorporate these ideas into your own health journey so that you can feel better than you ever have before. Thinking about starting keto? Take a listen to episode number two, What is Keto and How to Start? Welcome to episode 124 of the Fabulously Keto podcast. And today I'm interviewing Dr. Ian Lake. We've interviewed Dr. Ian Lake before, and as well as being a GP, he's also a type 1 diabetic. And many doctors are scared to treat people with um, type 1 diabetes. So it's important to bring more awareness to this and bring things out into the light. So if you know any type 1 diabetics, then point them to this podcast, as well as episodes 3, 15 and 51. Now, unfortunately, we had a little bit of sound issue, but which we didn't realise until we started editing the podcast and the backup recording didn't work. So if you one, you're going to hear some loud noises and I've tried to get rid of as many as I can, but some I've had to leave in because Ian was speaking at the same time so and others I've removed so if there's an odd word missing that is where I've cut out that horrible sound so apologies I hope it doesn't interfere with your enjoyment too much let me tell you a little bit about Ian Dr Ian Lake is a GP in the UK having type 1 type diabetes himself he adopted a ketogenic lifestyle seven years ago which he feels positively transformed his daily diabetes control to near non-diabetes levels. He runs a website dedicated to providing information about ketogenic lifestyles in type 1 diabetes, and he's launched a comprehensive course for healthcare professionals. He self-experiments on ketogenic diets in type 1 diabetes and in 2019 he completed a five-week solo and unsupported run covering over 700 miles on just 9% carbohydrate. In 2020 he took it to a whole new level by organising the 05100 project, a 100-mile team run over five days fully fasted with zero calories. So let's go and hear what he's talking about today. Welcome, Dr. Ian, to the Fabulously Keto podcast. It's fabulous to have you back with us today. Yes. um, Hello, Jackie. Thank you for inviting me back for a second time. It's great. Yeah. So we saw each other in May and you told me some of the things that you're doing now and launching of just launched as as we're recording um so this is going to be really good to catch up with what's been going on since we spoke to you probably two years ago now yeah looking forward to talking to you to about things that have happened since brilliant so why don't you start for the listeners by telling them a little bit about your journey and how you came to low carb i know we did it on the previous episode But, you know, there will be people that will uh, be listening today that haven't heard you before. Okay, thank you. So I have type 1 diabetes and I've had it now for 27 years. Um, I developed it in the spring uh, or late winter of 1996, 97, something like that. Um, The first inkling inkling that I had it was when I fell asleep in a car wash and somebody had to bang on the window to say, would you mind moving on? And clearly that was because I was hyperglycemic, had a high sugar. Um, after that, uh, within, in a half hour journey, I had to stop about four times to go to the loo and drank about three litres of fluid. Uh, so I had a very abrupt um, presentation of type 1 diabetes. So I was put on insulin straight away and I managed it in a conventional way for 20 years. I had a very good... You were quite, you were much older then because quite often it happens. Um, so Sorry, I, I was in my 30s. I yeah, it's often young people that get it, isn't it? Yeah, 
Uh, it, it, yeah, a lot of young people get um, type one, but there, there are a significant number of um, people in their you know thirties and forties get it. It's sort of a second wave. It's called larder or latent autoimmune disease of adulthood. It's the same um, process in the sense that it's thought to be autoimmune, but it seems to be much more slow in most people. Although for me, it seemed to hit me straight away. Yeah. Um, there you go. But it's it's still the same effect as I need to inject insulin for the rest of my life. Uh, or until somebody comes up with something amazing. Um, so accepting that, I went on the conventional diet, uh, which is the same that everyone else eats and just managed it with insulin injections at the time of meals and some basal insulin in the normal way. 20 years on, I started to feel quite achy and old. I was in my mid-50s at that stage. And, um, you know, I'm getting a bit of brain fog. Uh, my sugars were tending to be higher than I'd like. Uh, and my HbA1c was creeping up to, to 70, which is around about eight point odd. Um, so that wasn't very good. And it stayed there for a couple of years uh, while other things were going on, on in my life, so, such that I defocused on diabetes, really. And that's not uncommon. And two things happened within a short period of time. I was on a very long cycle trip. It was all around the North Sea cycle route, which is three or thousand miles. And I was camping by an, an idyllic setting um, of, a, of a fjord off a road. And I woke up with a, a very severe hypo of 2.4. It woke me up. I consumed all of my glucose that I had on board because our cycling wasn't carrying much stuff. It was buying for the day. And I was still hypo after a whole packet of glucose tablets. Mm. So I don't know what happened, but something serious had gone awry. Um, so all I could do was pack my stuff away. I could just about see at the time, and I could just about function, but I was, I was seriously not well. And I managed to cycle off the beaten track onto a main road. Well, as luck would have it, there was some discarded bread in a bin in a lay-by. And uh, that was the thing that saved me, really. I was hoping if I did collapse at that point, someone would drive past and find me, but it was four in the morning. Um, um, so there we go. So that was one event that happened. And the second event was that six months later, I was um, found to have very early diabetic retinopathy. I'd never had any problems until that point. Yeah, uh, and I, I always thought I could outrun it. I, I'm quite like doing sports and um, you know, sort of running and, and walking in the hills and all that sort of cycling. Um, and I thought, oh, if I do physical activity, I'll probably avoid uh, any complications because that will offset the poor sugar control. Yeah. <laughs> what, a, what a stupid thing to think, but that's the way it goes, isn't it? Uh, and I'd read Richard Bernstein's book, which is a book about low carbohydrate diets, ketogenic lifestyles, a year before put it down um, because I thought there's a bit faffy and too much fat in it, strangely. Uh, and then I picked it up again and thought, well, I've absolutely nothing to lose here. I feel old. I'm starting to get serious hypos and, and poor control. And now I'm starting to get complications. And so it's a downhill all the way from here. So on um, picking up Richard Bernstein's book again, rereading it and having my first omelette in the morning, thinking this was completely stupid, um, I saw that my glucose control was perfect and it's remained so ever since. I never stopped. And, and the realisation that you can manage your uh, type 1 diabetes very, very well indeed with something simple like a diet, continuing to use insulin, uh, sort of has sustained me through the past seven years. And I've never had an HbA1c in the diabetic range ever since, yeah. which I think is remarkable. That's amazing. Yeah. So that's what got me started, really. And so passionate am I about um, trying to provide information to other people with type 1 so they don't have to go through the same thing. Um, I produced a, a sort of small sort of website, uh, became a founder member of the Public Health Collaboration, and just trying to get the message out. I'm not suggesting that everyone goes keto. Um, that's not the point of this. The, the point is that everyone has the information available to find out what keto is about and how to do it. And if they choose to fit that into their lifestyle, that's entirely up to them. But there's nothing worse than having a death certificate with the, the first part being type 1 diabetes and the second part being ignorance on, on the certificate. You know, you should never die of ignorance if you, if you have access to information. So I'm setting out to try to get good information out to people. Because I think we know, you know, we hear a lot about um, using low carbohydrate diets for um, and carb restriction for type 2. But type 1, there's still that fear because because you still need insulin, I guess, there's still that fear around it. And actually, 
people like you are the ones that can really benefit the most, I think, by incorporating, if they choose to, by incorporating it and managing it, because you're not going to reverse the situation because you need insulin all the time, but at least you've got a way of managing it. And like you said, it's much more in control. And we've spoke to Hannah Botis as well. And, and she says that, and I think you said it as well, that life is more predictable and easier to manage when you can um, control, you know, you know what's going to happen or you have a better idea of what's going to happen with your blood sugar. I think that's right. And um, I tend to forget my diabetes um, when I'm out and about now. I know I know I have it. And, you know, after 27 years, I'm well rehearsed in putting it into the background and making sure I'm doing everything I need to do. I suppose it's a bit like driving a car. You automatically look in the mirror, you automatically read the road ahead, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and with diabetes, you always know that you're carrying your glucose tablets with you, you're taking extra needles, et cetera, to, in, in the background, always thinking about your diabetes, but it never impinges that much. And uh, I've, I've done a blog on my website about um, physical activity because one, one great example, I, I used to do paragliding, um, just as a sport and I stopped it seven years ago uh, and I haven't done any since I became keto but um, I've picked it up again over the last couple of years and, and really enjoying myself but I had to put myself back through training just to get you know just to stay safe and when we were walking in the hills in Wales uh, doing our training carrying our packs on our back which weighed about 14 kilograms is not not light walking up hills I, it suddenly struck me so much that my preparation for this is almost zero. I'm just concentrating on what I'm doing rather than worrying about should I be taking extra glucose tablets now. I fasted all day. I didn't eat a thing. We consumed about 4,000 extra calories over and above my background. And I almost forgot about my diabetes. Mm. How wonderful it is. Yeah. yeah. The, other, the other thing is, I don't know whether you remember those uh, things called Tamagotchis. Um, they were little toys that children had and, and they're digital toys and um, there was a craze for them when my children were of, of that age you know and they're basically you control a small animal from its hatching to its development as an adult so when it hatches you have to start feeding it and you have to start changing its nappies and you have to start playing with it and then you have to put it to sleep and and you know you have to keep it going and it's it you know, it's all-consuming sort of toy that you know, goes on for about a week or so before you've completed the whole program. And my kids went to school and they sort of handed them to dad and said, dad, can you look after our Tamagotchis while we're at school? <laughs> and by midday, they're both dead. You know, they're, they're not the children, the Tamagotchi children. <laughs> and, and then the next day, they handed them to their friend Rosie's mum, Erica, who kept them alive for the whole of the week. And some people are just good at um, routine and managing things. Some people aren't. And I think for those that aren't, uh, a simple regimen of diabetes control is, is highly recommended. And the keto provides that. And it provides fantastic results and, and great clinical safety. People who are, um, are on a keto diet have six times fewer hypos, despite the fact that every time you go to clinic and you've got a really good HbA1c, your clinician often says, well, you're at risk of hypo. And yes, you are at risk of hypo if you have a high carb diet, but on a low carb diet, the, that risk is reversed. Yeah, because yeah, that's my husband had a hypo a few a couple of months ago. That's it's not pleasant, is it? Oh, it's not. No. It's not good to watch. I'm sure it wasn't good to go through, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, no. Try to avoid hypos. They're always they're ever present. It's just that they. Um, with a keto diet they're far far less serious because they just wander in very slowly because your insulin volumes are so small they don't sort of crash in from nowhere you know if you're injecting one unit of insulin it's going to drop your um, blood glucose by about two to three millimoles per, per liter depending on whether you're a child or whether you're insulin resistant and can be different but about two so if you're injecting 10 units well it will drop it by 20 yeah. So if you've got blood sugar of 10, it's going to drop it to minus 10. So that's why you have to have the carbs to counteract the insulin effect, of course. But getting it wrong on um, on a high insulin regimen is much more serious than getting it wrong on a low insulin regimen, which is keto. Yeah. Yeah. So since we last spoke, and because that was about 18 months, two years ago, 
you've been doing lots of different things. And one of the things you did is what you call 05100, and it was an experiment. Can you tell us, first of all, tell us a little bit about it and then tell us what happened afterwards with your research papers? Yeah, so one morning I woke up and thought, how on earth, this has been going through my mind for a long time now, how can I get through to people um, that various aspects of diabetes management um, don't require conventional approaches. So for example, if you're taking insulin, you don't actually need to eat carbohydrates unless you're hypo, as long as your insulin is dialed in properly. You know, if you're on a ketogenic diet, you are not at any increased risk of diabetic ketoacidosis. You know, and sugar is not your energy source, your fat and your glycogen, which is indirect sugar. But eating sugar is not your energy source. And these, these are common themes that play out in diabetes clinics week in, week out. And the number of people that tell me that, oh, my physicians advise me against it because um, of these common things. So I thought it just came to me. I said, well, how can I actually show that you can burn fat safely? You don't need carbs with insulin and, and you know, missing a breakfast. That's the other thing, isn't it? Oh, you've got to have three meals a day plus snacks. Well, I thought, well, how can we show that sort of missing breakfast or intermittent fasting is, is okay? So it came to me that if we do a, put ourselves into deep nutritional ketosis well beyond the, the glycogen uh, store, so we thought 225,000 calories would be 10 times the estimated glycogen store, so that would rule that out. We thought, well, 25,000 calories is about 100 miles distance for, for running walking, if this is a run-walk exercise. Uh, and... Um, so it's all aerobic, not anaerobic. And so we, we chose 100 miles for, to, for to cover the 25,000 calories. And we thought, well, how long should we take to cover that 100 miles? This is never going to be a, a sort of an ultra marathon, hard man, hard woman sort of exercise. It was not going to be a challenge. It was going to be to show that in everyday life, um, you know, things are normal. And of course, this wasn't unfortunately perceived as everyday life but so we thought well five days is about right because that will put us definitely into ketosis if, if 20 miles a day so even if we get injured we can probably stagger that distance if we're determined enough yeah and five days we shouldn't start breaking down our protein stores significantly so we couldn't be accused of being in starvation state so we measured a, few, a, lot, a lot of things we did continuous glucose monitoring we did ketone monitoring we did mood scores hunger scores and um, we also had a breath analysis of our metabolism to show that we were in fat burning mode. There are eight of us did it. One other person had type one diabetes. That's two people with type one diabetes. And uh, we managed to successfully complete it. Um, the two people with diabetes had perfect control all the way through. And when you broke down, when you analyzed our ketone measurements, which were taken twice a day for those five days, and when you aggregated them with all of the people with no diabetes, you could not pick out the person with type one from that graph. Yeah. Would show to me that if you hit neophysiological conditions with your insulin, you're very unlikely to, um, to have any problems. Um, and that proved to be the case. One interesting side, if, side uh, line on this was that two of our um, participants were wearing continuous glucose meters. Uh, in addition to the people with type 1. And one of them was running a, a sugar a blood glucose of 3.0 or less for 30% of the time with no symptoms whatsoever. So she was technically hypo, but with no symptoms of a hypo. Uh, and she was managing to run walk 20 miles a day, which, which begs the question as to what, how you're actually going to define a hypo. Now, we, we should all... Because... Um, everyone or 90 odd percent or more of the population on a high carbohydrate diet and because of the dangers of sudden glucose um, um, sudden glucose dropping with with high insulin levels we have to have a safe hypo target so four is absolutely fine and five for driving um, but it but for the the wider sort of ideas on how to manage diabetes you have to think well how why is it these people on ketones can get down to three if, even if they don't have diabetes, you know, that's not thought to be possible and have no symptoms. So that was an interesting sideline of that. So we managed to get the, um, we, get, we get a paper out of it and it was published and, and on my website, um, there's a link to that paper. 
Uh, it's reached the 97th centile in altmetric, which um, monitors performance of the paper. So that means it's it's in the top 3% of all papers published around that time. Um, so that, that has done quite well, really. That's good. Diet Doctor took it up, and so did several other um, publications, and it did quite, quite well. Uh, around the world, but unfortunately it hasn't broken through in, in my own country, the UK. So I, I asked main charities and several organisations to take a look and I had no replies. So it hasn't hit the UK apart from one, one or two publications. It hasn't hit the mainstream. So that was very disappointing. Do you want to touch on why that is, you think? I, 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 don't, I, I don't know. I think people don't really want to get it. I think there's a degree of willful ignorance here. Uh, I, I can only surmise that people are doing their very, very best, but this is so far out of what people have been trained to do that they find it hard to, to take a look at this and, um, and think, well, is there something in it? You, you know, I think more and more people, as they look at it, are, are starting to, to, to understand it. But I've done a survey on my website of 140 people um, and this was a survey done by a big company uh, who, you know, are able to screen out bots and screen, screen out people who are uh, repeating the um, survey more than once, et cetera, et cetera. And of those 140 people, 97% felt that uh, ketogenic lifestyle was sustainable. But it, 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 came, it became apparent that 50%, just a 49% of all clinicians were actively telling patients that a keto diet was dangerous, um, which suggests if they're actively telling people it's dangerous, um, that means they know something about it. Um, because if you say, I don't know much about it, but I've heard it's dangerous, that's totally different to saying you shouldn't do it because it's dangerous. 40% mm. were tolerant of it, but only 7% of all clinicians, doctors, nurses, um, uh, dietitians in the NHS were recommending keto as a management tool for type 1 diabetes. So 93% of people go into a clinic um, and the, the general advice is, is for high-carb diets. Uh, so we have 50% of people currently advising against a keto lifestyle. And I, I reanalyzed that with 18 people I call my keto ninjas. They're sort of a focus group of people who they will go and tell their doctor what they want rather than ask their opinion. You know, yeah. they're, so, they're so experienced with keto lifestyle that they know it inside out. And um, when we drill down into the reasons why clinicians um, weren't very happy, um, the ones that said, no, this is a dangerous practice, um, bear with me just a second. I'll just get the results up for you. Here are the results. Here are the results. Uh, of the 49% who were not supportive of keto diets, 25% uh, were concerned about the risk of hypoglycemia. Yeah. Uh, that's completely not true because we know from research evidence uh, from 2006 from a guy called Nielsen in Sweden um, that uh, the risk of hypoglycemia reduces sixfold in people with, um, on a keto diet. And that was just 75 grams of uh, carbs. That's not quite keto. And in my own survey um, of these 140 people over two years, uh, it was that 70% um, of people had half or fewer hypos and 33%, I think it was, I, I have to check that, about a third were having three times fewer hypos. So that, that correlates with, with the previous evidence, but it's not quite as strong. So we do know that hypos are less frequent uh, on a keto lifestyle. 19% um, of the respondents, uh, of the 50% that didn't agree with keto, believe that carbohydrates are an essential macronutrient. And we know that is just not true. 12.5% thought the stroke risk was increased because of the increased fats. And I, I can I think that, you know, that's valid. I, I, I would say that's valid because based on high carbohydrate diets, we know that, um, uh, well, it's, it's becoming less, but we know that high fat diets are probably uh, an increased risk for stroke based on a high carbohydrate diet. So uh, in that situation, the fats are being mobilized for storage. So the fats are moving out of the body into the fatty tissues to be stored. And I don't think that can necessarily correlate with the situation um, in a ketogenic diet where the fats are being mobilized for burning as energy. 
So I think the lipid profiles will reflect whether the fat's being burned for energy or whether the fat is being mobilized for storage. And of yeah. course, all of the risk factors uh, for heart disease and stroke are based on high carbohydrate diets. And all of the evidence for the effectiveness of cholesterol lowering drugs are based on high carbohydrate diets. But nevertheless, I can understand that that, that would be valid. 19% um, uh, said the diet is unsustainable or bland. <laughs> well, where's the, where's the science in that? Uh, and the, 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 you know, the report we got back said 97% uh, uh, of people felt that it was sustainable. And, and that is, that is a, a value judgment. That isn't a scientific um, reason for, for that's the, that is the clinician's own opinion. Uh, and I don't necessarily think that that should uh, impinge upon a, uh, an information um, type of uh, consultation. Yeah. Uh, 12 and a half. Sorry. I was going to ask you, so the 140 people that you um, responded did, to the that, survey, responded to the survey, were they, were they all people with type 1 diabetes? They all had type 1 and they all were on a keto diet. And they were all on a keto diet. So this information about the doctors, where does that come from? Or were they, because they obviously weren't included in that. So how did that come about? Was that I, what? I asked my, um, yes, sorry, I asked my sort of, group of 18 people who are so I, I use as a focus group uh, what they thought having asked them similar questions about if your clinician wasn't supportive why do you think this was and they had free text to give the answer and they, right. were the they gave yeah so I think that's that's reasonable um 12 and a half percent felt that diabetic ketoacidosis was a risk for somebody on a keto diet again that's completely wrong 6% had concerns about lipids and cholesterol. And as I've just talked about, I think that's valid. And 6% wanted to adhere to NHS guidance. And, and of course, you can't argue with that. So by far the majority of people who do not approve of keto diets provide information, uh, basing their uh, opinion, if this is true, on the fact that um, they're, provi they're provided with the wrong information. So they're, they're, they're not trying to harm people. They're not trying to... Um, uh, they, you know, they're giving their genuinely held opinion, but unfortunately, those generally held opinions aren't based on any fact, and I, I think that's quite, quite worrying, really, because if fifty percent of people actively say you shouldn't do a keto diet for reasons that aren't actually valid, it means that if you if you're diagnosed with diabetes and you do your first clinic attendance, I mean, how would you feel if the receptionist tossed a coin and said, "Oh, okay, we'll send you to that doctor," or "We'll send you to that doctor." And you get a completely different opinion um, based around really chance as to who you see on the on the day, and I, I don't think that is acceptable. Um, I'm quite happy for people to advise against for all sorts of other reasons that um, a clinician may feel that um, a, a person with diabetes it wouldn't suit them, but I think the people with diabetes need that information. But I also think that clinicians need to be given accurate information so they can impart that to the patients it's just not appearing on any websites at the moment you know the main websites still say i mean diabetes uk website it still says i have type 1 diabetes what can i eat and then straight after that it says in a word anything now i don't think that's acceptable <laughs> and i've had a chat with them about it um, but of course you can eat anything but whether you should be eating anything or everything is a different matter. And, and I think we have to, to say, well, you can't actually eat everything because it's going to harm your metabolism in the long term. Yes, you can eat anything, but I don't think you, sh you know, for these reasons, I think these things will probably be harmful to you in the long term. I think yeah. A phrase like that. Exactly. I think the idea. if you people gave people the, the, option you know not only the options but the consequences of those options then they're in a position to make a more informed choice that's my take on it yeah because I, I i can understand there's an element of sentimentality in this as well you know trying to say oh well, look your life needn't change people with diabetes you don't need to be stigmatized because there's a huge amount of stigma um surrounding type 1 diabetes still and, you know, they say, I mean, do what you like. You can go and climb Everest. You can fly airplanes. You can do parachute jumps or whatever you want to do. Uh, and you can still have diabetes, but enjoy your life. And I think there's an element of that in there as well. But it's, but I think it's not accurate enough for, for to, to, to be on a website. Yeah. 
I agree. I, and I think it, I mean, it's hard to on a website to give the information in a way that will be understood and taken in and giving a balanced view, but I still think they should try. It's yeah, not the same as talking rest, to somebody. Yeah. The rest of the site's pretty good by and large. I, I, I'm, I'm not brilliant with the, 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 their diet advice, but they, they never say you should eat a certain level of carbs. They always say your carb level should be flexible and uh, depending on what you want. So, you know, that, that is, I think that is great. And Diabetes UK, um, they're also very good at campaigning on behalf of patients, certainly with respect to insurance and accessibility to various things. So, but, but that really grates with me because I don't think you can eat everything as a type one and do well in the long term, even though technically, yes, you can eat anything you want. Yeah, but the effect of the higher insulin over time is going to be cumulative and um, cause problems in the long yeah. term, isn't it? Yeah. So what else have you been up to? You've been launching a course. Tell us about your course. Well, on, on the basis of that, those responses alone, I felt, well, I need to get out because, you know, I know that clinicians aren't, uh, who um, give advice out on di diabetes and type 1 just aren't giving, in my opinion, enough information for people um, to, to support a keto lifestyle should they want to do it. Uh, and on this survey I did, you know, there's about 40, 50 percent of people were, were saying there's just not, not enough information. There's conflicting advice. Um, my diabetes specialist advisors against it was 49 percent. There is so much confusing information. It's difficult to decide. That's 27 percent. Lack of information, 50 percent. These are these are people with the condition. Um, I, it is difficult to get um, HbA1c tests done. Um, and then the other one is I have been, I've, I have had to go it alone. 60% of people have done this alone without any help from any clinician at all. And they've done it quite well and quite safely and reduced their hypofrequency. So I think that's quite impressive. Yeah. You know, I can understand that people have to go it alone. And, and whilst we always say, speak to your doctor, if the doctor's not willing to listen or willing to help, then you, you've got to take responsibility for yourself in a way haven't you i think that's right so what i decided to do in over the last sort of year is to produce um, a piece of uh, work for healthcare professionals of all grades that gave them the information in a sort of a, like a course format um, on how to what keto diets are all about uh, how to initiate keto diets how to help patients with insulin management and, and, um, and other areas uh, around diabetes safety. So I produced one whole course, which is over, it's a minimum of 20 hours of, of CPD. It's been accredited for continuous professional development now. Um, and it covers a load of biochemistry, a whole load of practical. And then it covers all of the, what I call holistic elements like um, physical activity, how to stay safe with physical activity, uh, mental health, food addiction, uh, driving rules, uh, etc. Um, there's a good section, I think, on, on, on the etiology. How did I get type 1 diabetes? What are the current theories about how diabetes um, starts in someone? So there's a six-hour course, which is a very practical course. Just tell me how to do it sort of thing. And then there's a 20 hour or more course, which is all about the theory of, of me metabolism, how, how the biochemistry works, um, et cetera. So that has just been launched and I'm hoping it's going to get traction with, with that 50% of people who find it difficult to, to understand what we're all doing. So I'm, my hope is that this will go out to uh, primary care um, nutritionists and hopefully some secondary care people. I think that'll be difficult. Uh, and it will just become a standard um, piece of learning for people who want to provide diabetes education in, in type 1 diabetes. And then they will have the information to support their patients and give them information they need. And there's a parallel website. I mean, the, 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 this, this uh, attracts a price, but there's a parallel website for people with type 1 who can access similar information at a slightly less postgraduate level. Um, that will help them to get started too. So the conversation between the clinician and the patient 
can be a very rewarding experience and an experience of discovery. Because don't forget that everyone with type 1 has a slightly different presentation of their condition and a different way of managing it. Mm. You have type 1 on day 1, you have a totally different way of managing your diabetes if you've had it for a 1,000 days, for example. Yeah. And, and therefore, every person with type 1 has to have a, like a personalised approach, but there is a general way of approaching um, type 1 diabetes with a keto diet. And then you nuance it towards the person's individual needs. So that's what's going on at the moment. And I'm hoping that that will start to stop this sort of conflict that, that exists almost between people who want to go keto and people who don't want them to go keto. And the reasons they don't want to go keto aren't valid anymore. How are you going to get it out there? How are you going to get the word out there? Is that through the PHC ambassadors or? PHC ambassadors will play a part. Um, I'm trying to sort of spread it through the um primary care networks, integrated care services um, through the, the, the nutritionist or private system. It's, I'm, I'm at the moment engaging with marketing people because um, we'll set by any means. So I need to get in touch with um, marketing people to try to, to get the message out. I think it's a good course, but um, it's, it's no good if it sits in my computer. It needs to be out there. There's another group where, where, who I'm a medical advisor for. They're called Keto Live. Um, there are a, it, it's keto in the wider sense. So it's treatment of keto for many more, more diseases than type one diabetes. But they they're going to take this program and adapt it to their needs. They're based in Germany and Switzerland, um, and that's going to run out there as well. And we're going to next week and the week after we're going to do a whole series of, of videos to back up the course that they they require for their um, for their courses over there. So the, the there are areas where we can where we can sort of make impact, but I'm quite keen to get to the 50% of people who don't really get keto yet. The people that get keto, they're already providing good quality advice. Yeah. Um, 50% of people that don't, I need to give them something or they need to, to get something that's easy to, to, um, to, to learn from and we'll give them the basics they need just to, just to at least understand what their patients are talking about. Yeah. Even if even if they're not telling other people about it, they need to be able to support the people that want to do it. You know, if a patient comes to a doctor and says, I want to try this, they need to be able to support them. I think so. I think when a patient comes with ketones of two and a half, you know, a clinician shouldn't panic. You know, but, but, but with the current situation where everyone's in a fat storing mode, they're not actually getting any ketones in their blood because they're fat storing all the time. Uh, and clearly ketosis in, in a, a high-carb patient is, is serious because it, it does mean something's wrong. Uh, but ketosis in someone on keto isn't serious. And people just need to be comfortable with the fact that type 1s on, on a keto diet, they're probably fine. And of course, diabetic ketoacidosis um, can happen in any person with diabetes if you get ill enough, um, but not as a result of the diet itself. And these these simple things will make such a difference to the to the quality of the consultation between the patient and the, and the clinician, and that's what we're looking for, um, you know. And then then and then the people with diabetes will will feel that they're being supported. It's a lack of support, which which is um, quite distressing for type ones. You you often feel quite alone because nobody really wants to touch you, if you see what I mean, because. If you advise, you know, somebody on a Friday night when they're just going to the airport or something and advise them on how much insulin to take, you know, you worry about it because you think, oh, my goodness, what are they going to do with that advice? Are they going to go hypo or something? So it's taking the worry out of it and, and getting the, the right level of support, um, which will hopefully put keto on the map in type 1 diabetes. And I think keto, you know, for type 1s is the best form of treatment because we don't have any pancreas function or most of us don't have, have enough pancreas function. And therefore, we have to inject insulin and it goes into the wrong place. We, you know, we put it into the skin. Insulin in the body lasts eight minutes and it pulses away. We just whack it under the skin and it lasts a few hours. Um, and it's difficult to estimate the carbs and the insulin. And we do know that the physiology around eating with, with what we call peripheral insulin, that's insulin we have to inject, is totally altered by um, the fact that the insulin's in the wrong place. Um, so I think it's important for us to understand um, 
that if we don't, if we haven't got any insulin, we should minimize how much we need to inject to actually mitigate the long-term implications of over-injecting insulin. And that's just one example. So what about, um, because we might have listening to us today, we might have parents who have children in their, maybe in their teens or even younger, but maybe I think the problem arises for parents is when children hit their teens and then they, they want to be seen as, you know, in with their friends and doing everything that their peers are. And there becomes this challenge of what a type one diabetic teen should do against what they want to do. Have you got any advice for parents around that? Yeah, but the, the first thing I should say about poor control in people, in teens with type 1 and people are going through puberty is that there's a massive hormonal change and there's a growth spurt and that plays havoc with diabetes control. So the first thing is that they will find that diabetes control is more difficult at that age group. And secondly, as you say, um, people in their teen years are more likely to be experimenting with, with um, developing social skills and trying to fit in with the crowd and and you know, join join the adult society if that's the right word for it. So that you know, there is this element that we we as adults feel is rebellion, and, and it's a healthy sort of state for people discovering how to fit in in their own life. And and the, there's a an article in my uh, healthcare professionals advanced course which talks a lot about um, how to identify somebody who's got diabetes distress or diabetes related depression or eating disorders. And when you look at a lot of the uh, stuff that's being produced, it is that people give up because they can't do it. And it's not because they don't try, it's because they just cannot um, make any sense at all of having a high carb meal and trying to balance that with their insulin. So there's an element of, oh, well, I can't be bothered about it. There is an element of needing to fit in, but with, you know, good quality, well-formulated keto diets, they can still fit in uh, and, and not stand out. There's no worse way to stand out than having a, a having an epileptic fit as a result of a hypo on a Saturday. Mm. Um, and the, the, in my experience of reading around this subject, it's the fact that people don't feel that they're in control of their condition. It's the lack of, um, being able to manage your condition, which causes the, a lot of the problem. And uh, Richard Bernstein did some um, st- did a study on that, which showed that when people feel in control of their condition, they feel much more confident in handling it, um, and therefore they they have a better HbA1c, fewer hypos, etc. And you know, if you go out with your friends and and, and you're going for a meal or something, well, order the chips. Your friends will eat them. They'll think you're marvellous. <laughs> see what I mean? There, there yeah. are ways of, ways of being social without without trying to appear uh, being, uh, being outside of the group. But you have to be, you know, you have to modify your life. But lots of people have to modify their lives. But I don't think the modification is as great as you think. And when people realise they can actually control their diabetes, they can actually go out, have a great night, and not worry about whether they're going to be crashing down with the hypo or not worrying about the, whether they're going to be up all night peeing because their sugar's about 25. And then, then that gives them a lot more confidence uh, to, to actually manage it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those are people that just don't want to do it. Um, well, there's nothing much you can do about that. Um, but my advice would be if you have someone with type 1, you can get them engaged in, in improving their, their diabetes management on a day-to-day basis. And then they will start uh, and engage them in, good quality food for their age group and there's loads of websites out there for that then i think they will they will start to engage quietly um, to to help themselves because they will see the benefits of themselves of of uh, having easier to manage diabetes yeah but there, there will always be some you know there will always be some people that either don't want to or can't do or, or for whatever reason you know lives are complicated at any any stage um you know, and it's not just about your diabetes, is it? Growing up, um, it's about all sorts of social challenges, about finances, about your background, about what's going on in your family life, et cetera, et cetera. And diabetes is one part of that. So if you can get that right, it makes the other, other things much easier to deal with. Yeah. And I guess that if you can do do it 
a low carbohydrate or keto diet at home for most of the time than going out every so often with your friends depends how much you go out i guess um it's probably not going to make a huge difference but i think probably some of the things that younger people struggle with now is carbohydrate addiction and that you know we've grown up or not we because we're older and we didn't grow up with these things that they've been growing up with um that they just you know it's all about the carbs everywhere you go is all about the carbs so that makes it a challenge in itself because there's probably some level of carbohydrate addiction going on as well i think so i mean carbs we we know we're attracted to carbs because they make us fat for the winter um you know that's in the in the sort of evolutionary sense but you know manufacturers produce a load of carbs and of course the in the 70s the regulation they didn't the guidelines changed to recommend low fat so that inevitably ended up with high carb and now we have a, a high carbohydrate environment which are full of uh, ultra processed foods which are very attractive and appealing to eat um but uh, and, and they are hard to, to give up um there's some there's some information about how to identify eating behaviors and, and sugar addiction and then that will need specialist help so part of the, the keto course is to identify those people with mental health issues around diabetes and deal with that. And some of some of it is related to diabetes and some of it is just related to being alive and having to put up with the stresses and strains of daily life. But for those people who have got identifiers an eating disorder or a sugar addiction, you know, if you recognize it and point that out to those people, they can start to, to to deal with it. You know, recognizing the problem is fifty percent of, of, of treating it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So it's it's not easy, but I, I think if you can learn how to manage your diabetes well, then you've got more chance of um, getting through those difficult years with other aspects of your life, and you'll be in control when you go out and want to have, go on a bender or whatever you want to do. You you will have far sense that you're more in control of your diabetes. Yes, we've just got to get this through to the kids, haven't we? That- yeah, and and the adults, <laughs> and the adults, yeah. and the doctors. And, yeah. Yeah. There's a whole string of people that we've got to get through to, but we'll just keep plugging away, keep plugging away. So, is there anything else you wanted to touch on today? Well, yes, uh, I'd like people to go onto my website and and look at the course. There's a I've produced something called Navigating an Annual Review. And I think that will be useful for people with type one to, to have a look at uh, so they can then have a meaningful conversation with, with any specialist that tells them inaccurate information. And it's not an aggressive document. It's just a document stating facts. Um, and I think that will help a lot um, to move the conversation on. And um, is this for type one diabetics to yeah. review themselves? Yes, type one diabetes print out and have a look, and that gives them the the information they need to uh, put their case for keto if that's what they want to do. Yeah, they can yeah. move it on from oh you shouldn't do it because it's fatty, and they can move it on from that and say well no it isn't because ninety seven percent of people who do it don't think it is and they think it's sustainable. And then next question, you know, next advice, so they can move it on and start to develop more meaningful conversation around it. Brilliant. So before we finish, why don't you, I'm going to come on to ask you about your three top tips. Why don't you tell everyone how they can find you, your website, and also how they can maybe, well, we can link in the show notes to the research papers. Um, Is there anything that, how they can contact you and get in contact with you? Yeah, thank you. So if you go on to www.type1, that's number one, type1keto.com, there's contact page there and there's the links to, if you're a healthcare professional to the healthcare professional sites um, there's quite a lot of free stuff on there as well um, and yeah please get in touch if, if you if you need to do anything like that I look forward to that great so why don't you go ahead and tell us your three top tips well as someone who's experienced in keto lifestyle in type 1 diabetes my tips would be if your glucose is high and you can't work out why and you've injected insulin it isn't coming down best thing is to do some physical activity we, we often think that the livers are our main um, organ for managing sugar but actually our muscles uh, respond very well to insulin 
and and any excess sugar in the bloodstream, if you're exercising, will be burned up by the muscles. So if you've got high blood glucose and you don't want to inject any more insulin, uh, go do some physical activity and that will bring your blood glucose down. It takes about 20 to 40 minutes, so it's a bit of a commitment. Uh, my second... Can I ask you, can yeah. I ask you on that? Is that good advice for people that are not type 1 or even type 2 diabetics as well, if their blood sugar is a bit high, to just go and do some exercise? Oh, absolutely. It's, it's our second way of hoovering up glucose. So you, if you've got high glucose in the bloodstream, you, you will produce more insulin to get rid of it. If you're insulin resistant, that's more tricky, but your, your liver will take up some of the glucose and convert it to fat. But then if you're not exercising, your, your muscles, are uh, you've got this whole exercise, sort of this whole energy uh, sink called your muscles, which will take up glucose because you have insulin receptors in your muscles. And uh, so if you've got too much insulin in your body, you've got insulin resistance, you've got high glucose levels, um, and your, your, your liver's not doing the job as quickly as you'd like, you can hoover up all that excess sugar into the muscles just by exercising them. And exercising the muscles, they're not going to work. And how strenuous does the exercise need to be? Or is walking good enough? Anything is good enough. But if you can do um, something anaerobic, like running up, the, if you've got the ability, obviously, it depends on people's ability to do physical activity. But strength training is very good. If you, you know, muscle weight training or, or just walking about, if that's all you, all you want to do, it will all help. But if you um, perform anaerobic exercise, you will have to burn glucose at something like five times the rate uh, overall compared to if you're doing aerobic exercise. It's just the way it works. So I'm um, always getting confused. So anaerobic is raising your heart rate, isn't it? Yeah, anaerobic is where you're burning stuff in the absence of oxygen. The, the classic anaerobic exercise is the 100 meter sprint where almost no oxygen is going to be consumed during that time. It's all going to be glucose uh, rushing into the into the muscles as fast as possible. Yeah. Um, and aerobic exercises like we're doing now uh, is the probably preferred way for the body to go on because anaerobic exercise can only be sustained for seconds or minutes through anaerobic. But getting started with that and using some weights and things will help. But any pottering about, what I do is go for a brisk walk or a run or something. Uh, and if I can't do that, I'll just wander up and down a few flights of stairs at a place of work just to sort of help it out. Excellent. Sorry, I interrupted, but I think that was good for everyone to... That's my top tip. Yeah, my second tip is for most people with type 1, you will discover that there are times of the day where you, your, your glucose control is not as good as other times of day. Some of us, that's the morning, and probably for most of us, it's the morning, but others, it's different times of the day. And that doesn't seem to be related to what we eat, although what we eat will make it worse. So my other top tip is when you're well controlled and you've got your basal levels right and, and, and on a keto diet, try skipping a meal uh, and doing a bit of intermittent fasting. Uh, it will be completely safe on a keto diet to do so. And you'll find you'll improve your glucose control as a result. Excellent. And I guess uh, in the, if, if it's in the morning, we, you've probably still got that dawn effect that most of us deal with where yeah. you know cortisol is being released Absolutely. to wake us up and then the insulin comes in as well yeah if anybody's got any ideas on how to reduce the cortisol drive in the mornings please tell me well i think <laughs> it's it's yeah. a natural phenomenon isn't yes. it to wake us up and get us out of bed it is yeah so we don't really want to stop that happening but um it does. Along with it comes the need for more insulin, I guess. And my third top tip is if you are keen to try the ketogenic lifestyle, read up about it on my website or anybody's website. See if it looks like it's something for you and then ask your clinician to support you um, and try to encourage them to, to, you know, to get some knowledge about keto. And then it will be a fantastic experience for both of you. There's nothing more rewarding for a clinician than watching their patients do really, really well. And it's very frustrating when you're trying your best to help people within your own framework of a high carb sort of paradigm. Um, and they're not doing as well as you'd like them to. So if you can get started with keto and bring your clinician on with you, you will have a fantastic relationship with them for the rest of your diabetes life.
Yeah. And then point them in the direction of your website for them to get more information as well. You know, we don't we don't want to be this is, should not be a battle or a war. This should be a collaboration. So to get the best out of everybody. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Jackie. That was very enjoyable and um, uh, nice to speak with you again. Thank you. Ian has done this research from a core group of keto type ones, and he's looked at why 93% of people still get the high carb advice that doesn't help them to manage their type 1 diabetes. Getting a hypo or a low blood sugar can be serious if a diabetic can't get their blood sugar up quickly. Ian mentioned two important points. Diabetics following a ketogenic diet can have lower blood sugars without the symptoms of a hypo and also they're six times less likely to have a hypo. That is massive and really important if you're trying to manage your blood sugars. And the Society of Metabolic Health Practitioners is also creating a standard of care that is different for low-carb patients. And the reason this is important is because the standard of care should be different. As we see, a type 1 diabetic following a ketogenic diet is six times less likely to have a hypo. And also, if they do, it's they're less likely to show symptoms. So this is very different to somebody following a high-carbohydrate diet. So again, I'm going to put it in the show notes. The, the Society of Metabolic Health Practitioners is also you know, a great resource. So as I said, 93% of people are being told to eat what they want and are advised to eat a high-carbohydrate diet. And Ian also said that 60% of people had used the keto diet to manage their type 1 diabetes without any help from a clinician. And this isn't right. Type 1 diabetics should have access to medics that can support them to manage their diabetes. So if you know any type 1 diabetics, you can direct them to Ian's website, which is type1keto.com with the number one, and they can find information for themselves and find information for their clinician. They can also find the navigating an annual review, which there is a direct link in the show notes. And we want to encourage type 1 diabetics to encourage their doctors, diabetic nurses and other clinicians to look at the courses Ian offers so that they can understand and learn about type 1 diabetes with keto so that they can support their patients. So this is the last week. I am going to invite you to sign up for my New Year, New Body, New You program, which gives you lots of support, education and accountability. This is not like other programs where you're just in a Facebook group and receiving videos. This has lots of live group group time and one-to-one time of just you and me. So to find out more details and to sign up, go to fabulouslyketo.com forward slash new hyphen year. And the show notes for this episode can be found at fabulouslyketo.com forward slash podcast forward slash one, two, four. It would be great if you could support us through Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash fabulously keto and you can choose the monthly amount you wish. Can you recommend a guest we can interview? If you can, click on the link in the show notes to send us your recommendation. Would you like to join our Facebook group? Search for Fabulously Keto on Facebook. Our Facebook page is called Fabulously Keto and you can follow us there. Or you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Fabulously Keto. Or follow us on Instagram, Fabulously Keto 1. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know you listened by tagging us in your Insta story or Instagram post using the handle Fabulously Keto 1 and the hashtag tfkp all the links are on the website and in the show notes if you haven't subscribed to the podcast click the subscribe button reviews help us to be found and reach new listeners 
please leave a review of our show on your preferred podcast listening platform. We appreciate you taking the time and read them all. Disclaimer. The information in this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. Nothing in this podcast can be taken as advice. Whether our guests are doctors, healthcare professionals or not, they're only sharing their own opinions and stories and this does not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. It's always best to seek professional medical advice should you wish to make any changes to your current medication or treatments. Also speak to your own doctor if you have any concerns about your health or you wish to make lifestyle changes, especially if you're taking medication. Thank you.